Welcome to Beyond Prisons. This is Jay. Kim wasn't able to join Brian for this week's interview, but she will be back for our next episode. This week, Brian talks to Alex Vitali. Alex is a Vitali is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project there. He has spent the last 25 years writing about policing and cult and consults both police departments and human rights organizations internationally. He is also a frequent essayist whose writings have appeared in the New York Daily News, New York Times, The Nation, Gotham Gazette, and New Inquiry. His new book, The End of Policing, attempts to spark public discussion by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control. It shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, even public safety. Drawing on groundbreaking research from across the world and covering virtually every area in the increasingly broad range of police work, Alex Vitali demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to reductions in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing. Also, we finally got a new Patreon page up to help us make this podcast sustainable for Brian, Kim, and myself. You can find it at patreon.com slash beyondprisons, and we'd greatly appreciate your support if you're able to give something to help sustain this work going forward. On that note, we'd like to shout out all eight of our new patrons and appreciate the support we've received from each of you. And we want to give a special shout out to Andrew Diltz for giving to us at the $20 per month level. Thank you so much, Andrew. Finally, we want to shout out Malik Raymond for volunteering to transcribe our podcast to make our episodes more accessible. It's a great service and really thank you for that, Malik. We hope you enjoy Brian's conversation on the end of policing with Alex Vitale. Thank you so very much for recording this with us today, or with me today, I should say. Kim was unable to join us. I have to say the book is really excellent. It's called The End of Policing. Um, it's out on Verso now. I think just to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and how you came to write this book? I'm a, a sociologist at Brooklyn College, and I run the Policing and Social Justice Project here as well. And I've been working on policing issues for over 25 years now. Mm -hmm. I started uh, at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness in the early 90s, working on housing policy. And a lot of the folks that we were working with were reporting an, a real uptick in, in harassment from the police at that time. And my boss asked me to look into it. And, you know, what I discovered were the early stages of the implementation of broken windows policing across mm. the U.S. And that all, through a long convoluted process, led to my first book, uh, City of Disorder, How the Quality of Life Campaign Transformed New York Politics. And that, pro that book made me very aware of the dynamics of community policing and the ways in which that often allowed police to sort of capture the community 
and reframe all the community's concerns as policing concerns that often ended up just further criminalizing the most vulnerable populations in a community. So over time, I, I was noticing increasingly people calling on community policing, calling for community policing as a solution to the problems of abusive policing. And my analysis was always that this is a problem of over-policing and the brutality is just like the top end of that, the tip of the iceberg, and that what we need is an analysis of police reform that gets to the bigger problem of over-policing, not just these high-profile occasional incidents that happen to get caught on videotape. And so that's the origins of this book. It was all sort of thought out before Ferguson, before Eric mm. Garner, and I kind of put it on hold for a couple of years to write dozens of op-eds and essays to try to get some of these ideas out there, test them out a little bit, get feedback, develop my research, et cetera, and then finally was able to come back to it full time and get it out there. Well, I think it's an incredibly important contribution, um, and there's so much that we could cover today uh, if we had unlimited time. But I think to start, I would like to talk about the first two chapters of the book, um, which are primarily concerned with the history of policing in America, the sort of the popular myths about policing that we have versus the reality of, of law enforcement, and, you know, sort of an ov overview and your analysis on many of the reforms that are being offered up today and how they may miss the mark or fail to address a lot of the root causes behind the issues that they're put on those beats to, to deal with. So I think to start, um, and you know, like I said, there's a ton of information in this book. I really urge people to pick it up and read it. But is there, would it be possible for you to just sort of provide a little bit of a historical overview of the police in the United States, namely where policing came from, how it's been used, and who it's benefited historically in the United States. Just because I think it's important, you know, if we're going to talk about where we are and where we're going, you know, we need to talk about how we got here. Yes. Okay. So, you know, we're usually confronted with this kind of liberal myth-making about police, that the police are a kind of professional, politically neutral body whose job is to enforce the law, that they're mm -hmm. the front end of the criminal justice system. But I try to point out in the book that the historical origins of the police have very little to do with law enforcement, that they have more to do with the managing of profound inequalities, and, and in particular, the links between uh, three very important 19th century political economic phenomena, which are colonialism, the emergence of a mass industrial working class, and slavery. Mm -hmm. And that policing was a solution to a set of political problems that elites were facing in terms of how to manage the inequalities, the resentments, the conflict, the uprisings that these modes of economic exploitation, in essence, produced. And so throughout the development of policing in the Western world, we can see the interweaving of these three dynamics and how they're managed. So, for instance, the first 
state police force in the United States created around 1905 was the Pennsylvania State Police. And it was created because local police in rural Pennsylvania could not be counted upon reliably to shoot at striking minors. And so they needed a new force that was capable of putting down these strikes, including the use of deadly violence. And the model for the Pennsylvania State Police was actually the American colonial occupation forces in the Philippines that were there as part of the Spanish-American War. And we can see similar dynamics with the emergence of the Texas Rangers, who are essentially a colonial police force that then uh, morph into what we sometimes call a kind of Juan Crow policing, which is the suppression of Mexican-American communities, the denial of their voting rights, the suppression of unionization movements, etc. And of course, the legacy of slavery throughout the South and how that the management of slave populations then becomes transformed into policing. And, and I, my book argues, in fact, that uh, the Charleston uh, Watch and Guard, which is created in the late 1700s, is actually probably the first truly modern police force in the Western world that, that predates the development of the London Metropolitan Police in 1829. But the primary but not sole focus of that watch and guard was the management of a mobile slave population in Charleston that lived with their owners but worked in wharves and factories and warehouses throughout the city, which was the subject of a great deal of social anxiety by the white population who were caught in this contradiction of both wanting to have this cheap industrial workforce but fearing their, that their social mobility could lead to uprisings, revolts, and, and, and even low-level just criminality. And this new police force uh, is created to, to manage that, that population. Great. The next thing that I wanted to ask you, sort of going off, off of that and on our way to uh, talking about reforms today, and I just wonder if you uh, want to flesh this out a little bit. What, um, but I remember in the beginning of the book, when you're sort of talking about the role of reform in sort of changing police forces over time from this early period of police in the United States, and the goals of that reform had more to do with appearances than outcomes, perhaps. Is there anything that you want not to say about that? Not just appearances. Not just appearances. See, part of the liberal myth, right, is mm -hmm. that the police are neutral enforcers of the law. Right. And extending from that myth is the idea that that process is legitimate and desirable and that when there are problems, what's important is that, that we return to that mean, to that point of like the professional neutral enforcement of the law right. and that deviations from that uh, have to be understood as producing these legitimation crises for police. Mm -hmm. And the goal of that is always to restore that public confidence in the police. But what's missing from that conversation is any kind of critical assessment of what the legal frames are that the police have been asked to enforce. So, it, um, 
Naomi Murakawa, who I talk about in the book, uh, in her book, The First Civil Right, talks about how by liberals who saw racist policing in the South and abusive policing in the ghettos of the North, and their solution to that was not to address the roots of racial inequality, not to question the legal frames that police were using to carry out abusive and discriminatory policing. It was to further professionalize the police with the goal of restoring public confidence, i.e. confidence within the African-American community mm -hmm. and a kind of liberal white community looking on in horror at the abuses. And we're making the same exact mistakes today. If you look at Obama's 21st century policing report, it basically says the same stuff that liberal reformers said in the 1960s. We need to better train the police, better equip the police, give the police more resources, and the goal of that is to make them nicer, less biased, uh, more professional in their interactions, but never really addresses the mission the police have been given. And in particular, this explosive expansion in the police mission over the last 40 years that's tied to things like the war on drugs, the rise of broken windows policing, the war on terrorism, etc. And so much of the problem that communities of color face with over-policing are tied to this expansion of policing rather than some problem of discourteousness or failure to follow the law properly. I really appreciate that that part because of the resonance it has uh, with the current conversation around police reform and, uh, you know, in criminal justice broadly and, and even prison reform today, sort of the same fundamental mistakes and, and um, mischaracterizations that we see. I was wondering next if we could just talk about, you know, some of these popular reforms and if you could just kind of give your take on sort of how they missed the mark and expand on this a little bit. You know, one of them that, uh, just to throw a couple out, you know, we hear a lot about increased training of police officers. We hear about body cameras. We hear about diversity in police forces, you know, things like drug courts. Can you speak to any of those specifically? And then after that, you know, what I would love to do is to, is to dive in um, a little bit more uh, into, you know, some of the specific areas that you bring up as chapters throughout the book? Well, there's a lot to talk about in terms yeah. <laughs> of these, uh, these failed liberal reforms, most of which lack real evidence to support them. So you hear a lot of talk about training, and the, the big areas of interest right now are things like procedural justice training and uh, implicit bias training. And I think these are both highly misguided. Now, on the one hand, the, the backers of these kinds of training have strong evidence to point to. On the one hand, we do know that people have implicit biases, that these are not explicit intentional racisms, but that in, when split-second decision-making is called for, we see patterns of bias. Similarly, with procedural justice, we see that people rate the effectiveness of the police or their acceptance of the police based on the quality of communication and the professional demeanor of the police rather than the concrete outcomes of the interactions. And that's a robust literature that's pretty consistent. The question is, 
how should that be applied to the issue of police reform? So implicit bias assumes that somehow we can develop training that will undermine this implicit bias so that officers are less likely to shoot black suspects, are less likely to profile people, are less likely to be discourteous in certain situations. So first of all, there's not much research to show that that part is true, that you can actually develop training that will do that. And second, it doesn't make any difference even if you do because of two other problems, which are one, there's a lot of explicit racism in policing, unfortunately. Whenever we dig deeply under the surface, we find emails, we find radio transmissions, we find message boards that are filled with racist discourse from police. But the other is that the mission they've been given is predicated on reproducing racial inequality. And the most obvious example of this is the war on drugs. A procedurally proper, unbiased, legally appropriate pursuit of the war on drugs is still horribly unjust. And no amount of implicit bias training is going to change that. And procedural justice, this idea that we can train officers to better communicate, this is not going to work either. And there's no real evidence to support that it will work. And at best, what it will do is make people feel better about what the police are doing without interrogating in any meaningful way the mission they've been given and the implications of that mission for communities of color in particular. Right. So body cameras have been in the body cameras have been in the news a lot. Uh, there's new research since the book came out that in Washington, D.C. that showed they had absolutely no effect on the number of complaints, the number of injuries of people in police custody, et cetera. And increasingly what we're learning is they're being used primarily as tools of surveillance and PR for police departments and that people who have complaints feel that they've been arrested unjustly or have been abused in some way are not able to get the footage, the media can't get the footage, but any time the police save someone from a car crash, they immediately produce a PR clip and get that out to the media. Or when it exonerates an officer, that gets released immediately. So I think we have to really question this decision to give up a huge amount of privacy under the understanding that it would enhance police accountability because we're not really seeing very much on the police accountability side. Uh, you mentioned specialized courts. We've created a flurry of courts, drug courts, mental health courts, sex trafficking courts, and the outcomes of these courts is not very good. The sort of drug treatment, drug policy movement that backed a lot of the formation of these courts has largely rejected them as a failed experiment. That what they do is they continue to maintain the primacy of the criminal justice system in addressing what are fundamentally social and public health problems. So what's happening is in many places, if you need drug treatment, the only way you can get it is to get arrested and have a judge force you to go because these services are in such short supply and these courts have captured the few available beds so that they can give this appearance of engaging in problem solving. In many cases, people spend more time under criminal justice supervision. 
the outcomes are no better and sometimes worse, and it continues to conceptualize these problems as primarily ones of criminal justice management rather than public health. Right. And, you know, I guess what it amounts to, uh, you know, in terms of an intentional allocation of resources is uh, greater and greater investments in the police and expansion of police forces, you know, while the communities and services and safety nets that that really need these resources um, and are the lack thereof is, you know, reproducing these problems over and over again, continues to go ignored. Um, and, you know, I want to read just one paragraph here uh, from your chapter, uh, The Limits of Police Reform, which I thought put this sort of very succinctly. You write, any real agenda for police reform must replace police with empowered communities working to solve their own problems. Poor communities of color have suffered the consequences of high crime and disorder. It is their children who are shot and robbed. They have also had to bear the brunt of aggressive, invasive, and humili humiliating policing. Policing will never be a just or effective tool for community empowerment, much less racial justice. Communities must directly confront the political, economic, and social arrangements that produce the vast gulfs between the races and the growing gaps between the haves and the have-nots. We do not need empty police reforms. We need a robust democracy, which gives people the capacity to demand of their government and themselves real non-punitive solutions to their problems. Um, so I thought that that was just a really great way to put it. You know, one of the things that you mentioned there is that uh, we, you know, the government and, and our society are increasingly giving police various missions that, you know, uh, they're not equipped to take on or, you know, just shouldn't be criminal justice issues in the first place, maybe public health issues uh, or economic issues or, or what have you. And I, I thought maybe it would be a good idea just to talk about a couple of the ones that you raised in the book. One of them is the expansion of school resource officers. And we hear a lot about, you know, the school to prison pipeline. But uh, I was wondering if you could just sort of give a little bit of an overview of um, the expansion of school resource officers in the United States, but also just this dynamic of like tasking police with jobs and roles that they're not equipped or, or are completely counterproductive and how that plays out. What, what I try to do throughout the book is, is look at concrete things we've asked police to do and look at the origins of that, the outcomes of that, and then think about some of the reforms that have been proposed and critically assess them and then look at alternatives that don't rely on policing at all. And I, you know, the first example I start with is the expansion of school policing, which is predicated on two ideas. One is that armed police will prevent the kinds of mass shootings that happened at Columbine. But one of the things people fail to often realize about that narrative is that there were armed police at Columbine that day. And they made no positive difference at all in the outcome of that event. And this mania to put more guns in school as a safety measure seems deeply problematic to me. And there's just no evidence to support it in terms of outcome. School shootings continue to happen. And we have to directly deal with the causes of those school shootings rather than engaging in this kind of target hardening. 
The second and much more cynical and invidious is this notion of the, the juvenile super predator, which emerged in the mid-1990s from deeply conservative criminologists engaged in a really ideological project of demonizing young people of color based on extremely thin evidence. They claim that, uh, that we're producing a generation of sociopathic super predators who would sooner look at you, at, sooner kill you than look at you, and that we should expect an explosive wave of horrific juvenile violent crime. Well, every single year after that prediction was put out, crim uh, criminal behavior by young people fell. Juvenile violence declined. But Clinton and other politicians across the country picked up that rhetoric and used it to justify a whole raft of more intensive and more punitive criminal justice policies, including the expansion of school policing. And Clinton puts millions of dollars into hiring school police and creates a kind of ideological framework for justifying this. But there's no evidence that school policing makes kids safer. The whole premise is misguided and I would argue basically racist. And schools were at the time and continue to today to be the safest place that young people spend time. And by, by militarizing and policing these schools the way they're they are policed, we create insecurity in the minds of these young people. And we fail to address the actual problems that undermine both their performance in school and their sense of safety. And increasingly, this, this model of school policing has been tied to the dynamics around charter schools and high-stakes testing, where young people who drag down the test scores of the school are basically criminalized and driven out as part of a policy of ramping up test scores. You know, another, uh, and your chapters focus on a lot of different areas here. We're, you know, I wish we had time to go through all of them. Um, I, I will again encourage people to pick up the book. Um, you talk about mental health services, uh, homelessness, uh, sex work, the war on drugs, you know, immigration and, and political policing, you know, policing of speech and protest. But, uh, you know, two sections that stood out to me um, and that, you know, have relevance, you know, not just with prisons, but uh, sorry, not just police, but prisons as well, um, has to do with gangs and homelessness and specifically gangs, um, you know, gang designations uh, and the whole suppression tactic around dealing with gangs. It sort of just creates this system that is completely self-perpetuating uh, and sets itself up for all kinds of human rights abuses and civil rights abuses and, you know, sets itself up for distrusting communities and actually creating blowback and making these conditions worse. Um, you know, you point out, I believe in the book that, you know, people who are charged and arrested and convicted uh, for gang offenses, you know, they get out of prison eventually and they don't have any uh, opportunities for employment or housing or, or their opportunities are severely limited. They go back to these communities and it just keeps going on and on again. Um, you know, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the tactic around gangs um, 
and and sort of explain to people how this just creates sort of a snowballing effect of gang of gang violence and membership. There are a series of things that have been adopted in relationship to a kind of gang suppression policing model, which treats youth violence as a problem to be criminalized rather than a problem to be prevented through a series of community-based interventions. So uh, some of the things we see are the development of gang databases in places like California and Chicago and, and New York and other places that are labeling people as gang members with no due process and no oversight and no independent monitoring. And then that designation is used to try to get enhanced charges against people, more uh, punitive plea agreements, deny people bail when arrested, etc. They're also used for another form of this, which is the gang injunction. Mm-hmm. where cities come in and declare a gang and everyone who's associated with it as a kind of illegal entity and places restrictions on them in terms of association and certain kinds of public behaviors. Again, there's very little due process. Often the individuals are not named. They don't really have the right to contest their inclusion in these things. And people basically can be criminalized for hanging out with relatives, lifelong friends, etc. Third is the use of these broad-ranging conspiracy indictments where uh, there may be some underlying violent crime like a shooting, uh, but what they're doing is instead of trying to identify the shooter and those that directly took part in the violence, They're trying to build cases against every single young person they can link to the shooter in any way. So two kids get arrested in the park selling marijuana. Five years later, one of them does a shooting. Now they're saying that both kids are part of an ongoing criminal enterprise and that the shooting was in furtherance of that criminal enterprise, and thus they're both guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. And they're dragging in dozens, over a hundred in some cases, young people from a single community and charging them all with these incredibly severe violent crimes, holding them without bail, threatening them with decades in prison. And in many of the cases, the the plea deals that emerge are based solely on the testimony of other young people trying to avoid similar fates. Mm-hmm. and no physical evidence, and no often actual allegation of their direct involvement in any violence. So even if all of these were somehow effective, and there's very little evidence to show that they are, there are alternatives to driving more young people into the criminal justice system and just recreating mass incarceration. We can look at a study that was just released a few weeks ago here in New York that was evaluating a bunch of cure violence sites here in New York. This is a kind of national strategy to do community-based anti-violence work where folks from the community are hired to go out and talk to young people in the hopes of breaking the cycle of kind of back-and-forth violence uh, and trying to direct kids into pro-social activities. 
the results here in New York are incredibly positive. They have had dramatic reductions in gun violence, and those reductions have been compared to to control neighborhoods with similar demographics, and the results remained incredibly positive. Nobody goes to prison. No money gets spent on jails and policing. These programs are cheap to operate, and they develop communities. They don't tear them apart. Yeah, you know, on that subject of of money, you know, I had another question about this, just sort of anticipating some of the arguments that we sort of already hear and may hear. You know, a lot of what this book is advocating, and I think very sensibly, is for a focus on the root causes of various social issues, uplifting communities, you know, repairing and building a safety net to deal with them, with these issues, and developing, you know, holistic, or I think as you call it in the book, wraparound responses. Um, instead of falling back on social management and coercion and punishment, you know, but a lot of times what we, what we might hear, you know, especially like in, in sort of more conservative public policy circles is the question, well, who's going to pay for this? Where's the money going to come from? Um, Without sort of recognizing how we're already allocating resources in this problem. And as you've described in the book, you know, sort of without good reason or, or evidence or positive effect. Can you, could you just sort of address this topic of how we spend our money and how sort of the investments and the alternatives that you describe uh, might not only just have better outcomes, but are, you know, in a lot of ways, just better uses of money because, you know, like, for example, treating people for mental illness in prisons is far more expensive than doing it on the outside. So I just wondered if you had anything to say about about sort of that economic side of it. Well, I'll just talk about two dynamics in the in relationship to to the cost of all this. One is that we had a little uh, a research project here in Brooklyn a number of years ago where we we looked at the addresses of people sent to prison in New York state. Not the address where the crime occurred, but the address of the person who was being incarcerated. And what we found is that there were single blocks here in Brooklyn where the state of New York was spending over a million dollars a year to incarcerate people from that one block. Mm-hmm. And that if we aggregated this together in a whole neighborhood, we were talking about potentially tens of millions of dollars from single neighborhoods. And the question was, could a community figure out a better way to produce public safety with those tens of millions of dollars than just sending people to prisons upstate. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe they didn't want to take every one of those prisoners, but a lot of them were there for low-level things, and those people needed drug treatment, mental health services, decent employment, and prison doesn't provide any of those things. And so if communities could produce those kinds of things at the community level, then they would be producing safety and keeping people's lives together instead of tearing them apart. And it could be done with the money that's already being spent on prison. Another example is there's a growing body of research about the impact of fairly small number of very high-needs individuals who are homeless, often have mental health and or substance abuse problems, and we're finding that we're spending, in many cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year 
to cycle a particular person through homeless shelters, emergency rooms, jails, courts, etc. And that if we just spent that money on stable supportive housing, it would be cheaper and that person's life would be more effectively stabilized than that constant cycling through these very expensive systems. And so some places are actually starting to target those people and provide them with real support. And it saves money. You know, for that kind of money, you could put someone up in a five-star hotel and give them a personal assistant, and it would still be cheaper than what we're spending on all these other services. So it's just not rational. It's driven by an ideology that says that all problems are the, are the result of moral and individual failings and that the only way to respond to them is through punitive and coercive means. Because the alternative would be to address the kinds of market failures and the politics of austerity that are driving things like mass homelessness and untreated mental illness and high levels of youth unemployment. And we have to change the conversation from criminalizing people to reinvesting in people. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, in the time that we have remaining here, you know, I want to get to this, this conversation on the solutions a little bit more, you know, with policing failures and misconduct so pronounced and widespread across the country, um, you know, just like it is with prisons, there's a tendency, I think, uh, in these reform conversations, uh, or maybe a temptation to look to, to look for solutions from the federal government. Um, and part of this might be because, you know, I've, I've seen this um, from the Brennan Center and some other uh, places that are producing sort of policy ideas, it, it might be because the federal of the federal government's role in subsidizing and um, you know expanding a lot of these issues in the first place, um, and you know using investment and grants and things like that to try to change behavior from the federal level. Um, but as you note in the book, and as I've seen in a lot of other places, a lot of these problems and issues. Uh, you know, it, they might be better dealt with locally or regionally. And so I was, and, and another thing that you point out, um, which I also think was, is really important, is that it's not just policy and legislation and rules and regulations that are needed to change, but a lot of it has to do with culture and cultural shifts. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just talk about this a little bit. And if you think there's a role for the federal government here, what might that role be? But you know, where do we locate power in order to change these things? Well, it's, there's kind of a, a good news, bad news story here. That the bad news is, of course, that the Trump administration is is interested in in uh, rolling back any kinds of efforts to restrict police power or hold police accountable in any way. He wants to further empower them, expand their role even more than it already has expanded. Uh, the good news is is that his ability to do that is limited by the fact that policing is overwhelmingly a local concern, mm. and so police departments are funded locally and they're under political control locally. And efforts by the Obama administration, for instance, to use grants and Department of Justice interventions to reform policing were largely ineffective. There was just a a news story, I think, yesterday 
in uh, in the Huffington Post about Albuquerque, which has been beset with horrible problems, is not getting better and just refuses to do what the judge and the Department of Justice is ordering. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the research about Department of Justice interventions is very thin in terms of positive results. Uh, maybe a few interesting examples, but in general, those interesting examples are occurring because there's a local commitment to doing something, like in Seattle, where they have this community police commission that was formed in part because of really powerful community-based organizing, and it continues to show interesting results because of that. Mm -hmm. The problem, of course, is that most of the local reforms that are being discussed are the kinds of reforms that are in the Obama 21st century report, Mm -hmm. and that is not going to be effective. However, there is a kind of growing chorus of organizations and academics who are seeing that the solution ultimately has to be a radical shifting of resources from police, courts, jails, and prisons to community-based services that really make a difference in people's lives. So there are amazing groups around the country articulating this kind of message, fighting for it. In Los Angeles, the um, Youth Justice Coalition looked at criminal justice spending in L.A. County under local L.A. County control And they said, if we could just divert 10% of that, we would be awash in money for youth services, Mm -hmm. jobs, after-school programs, recreational facilities, wraparound services. We could do the whole nine yards with that money. It just requires the political will at the local level. And most of these cities are run by Democrats Mm -hmm. who should be open to these ideas. But the problem is that they too have been caught up in this politics of austerity, of tax cuts for the rich and declining services for everyone else. And it's mm-hmm. that underlying political d- dynamic that has to be directly opposed as well. Right. And, you know, just to bring it up again, the, the cultural element of this too, because I think you mentioned in the book that you can have these reforms, you can have these changes, but if it's still the same mindset, uh, you know, pulling the levers. Um, then abuse will continue, rules won't be followed, uh, and so on and so forth, right? Well, that's true. I mean, the, the, the culture of policing has really shifted in some bad directions towards militarization and this kind of thin blue line mentality. And while I think it's, you know, we do need to confront that, we need to also understand that there are limits in our ability to significantly change that. Mm-hmm. And that what may be more important and more successful is to take away their power and their tools so that they are mm-hmm. less of a force in our everyday lives. Definitely. Um, before I get to my final question for you here today, a question that we ask all of our guests, I was just wondering if you had any you know, final comments about the book or about the subject that we didn't get to talk about today, but that you want to impress upon people who are listening. I think one of the ideas that kind of guides the book is that instead of starting from imagining a world without police or something, what I say is imagine a community that has real problems that need to be solved and that local government and the community 
come to the table together on an equal basis, put all their resources on the table, and try to figure out a solution to that problem. When we do that kind of thing, what we find is that policing is always very far at the bottom of the list of priorities. But of course, we almost never have that kind of process. Instead, communities are told there's only one resource available to help them, and that's more policing. More invasive, more aggressive, more disruptive policing. And that's got to change. So my final question is a question that we ask all of our guests. Um, as you may know, this is a podcast on prison abolition. Um, we go a little bit beyond that. You know, we're talking about police, which are, you know, a very big part of the system. But we, we ask our guests every time what abolition means to them and how they see their work as liberatory. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say about that. So for me... Abolition is about a process. It's about thinking about how to empower communities and solve problems in humane ways rather than relying primarily on coercive state power and punitiveness. So I try to always imagine the most cost-effective and humanly dignifying way to solve a problem. And whatever we can't solve that way, then we can talk about, you know, what what the state power that would be needed would look like. Mm-hmm. But I think for the vast majority of what police do, there are alternatives. Many of them have been tried and shown good results, and others need to be attempted, experimented with, evaluated, etc. Okay, great. Thank you so much, uh, Alex. The book is called The End of Policing. It's available on Verso. Uh, if people want to seek you out and find your work and, and follow you, where, where can they go? Where can they find you on social media and, and stuff like that? The, be- the best place is to follow me on Twitter, at A Vitali. That's uh, Vitali with an E on the end. Thank you so much for your time today and for writing this important book. This is really great, and I appreciate your time. You bet. Mm-hmm.